our DT systems, the Rap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Rap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack, easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff, easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. Force fetch, what is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it, you and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. What's up, Kevin? We are on episode seven of Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles. First off, quick shout out to my man, Matt Katalabowski. He is the winner from last podcast. He did everything we asked him to and more. So thank you, Matt. Shoot us an address and we'll get you a Lone Duck hat. But tonight, Kevin, big fan. I've got this guy here. His name is Barton Ramsey from Southern Oak Kennels. I've been following his content for a long time now. A lot of great stuff, awesome pictures, great dog trainer, great dogs. So, Barton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you guys for having me. I am uh, super excited to chat with you, Bob and Kevin. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we're excited too, man. So, do me a favor. Tell the listeners where you're from, who you are, a little bit about your kennel and your dogs. And then we'll get started with our questions. Yeah. So I'm Barton Ramsey. I live in Northeast Mississippi. I was born and raised here near Tupelo. Spent uh, about half a decade in the Dallas area. Moved back here and got into gun dogs and hunting at around 21, 22 years old. I didn't grow up hunting. I grew up uh, playing guitar and riding motocross. So very different sort of set of, of uh, hobbies and, and that sort of thing. Got into hunting through a guy who invited me. Um, honestly, that's a fun thing to talk about. We can go back to it later. But I, I didn't look like a hunter or act like a hunter. And a guy said, hey, I think you'd like duck hunting. Why don't you come duck hunt with me this weekend? And I was like, sure, fine. So did all the things I needed to do and uh, got into it really through having dogs. I thought it would really be fun to teach my Springer Spaniel how to do this. And uh, sort of snowball effect. Fast forward a few years, I had a, a hobby of training Labradors for guys and um I bred a couple litters because I thought, man, if I could train dogs that were kind of more like my dog, that would be pretty fun. And uh, I kept on doing that for a while, and the hobby just kept getting bigger and bigger until Southern Oak Kennels was born. And uh, we've been in existence about six, six and a half years now, uh, having a, a really fun time with, with SOK and spreading across the country. We've got a campus in Michigan. We've got a campus about 20 miles north of me. And we've got a campus we just opened in Charleston, South Carolina. My man, Parrish. Uh, of course, I've got my place here in Tupelo. Yeah, my and, buddy Parrish um, is the uh, one. Yeah. In, yeah, great guy. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. And uh, good guys, good team. Really proud of those guys. They they do some awesome work with Labradors. And a couple of years ago, we started Cornerstone Gundog Academy, which is sort of an online training resource, really the, the first of its kind, uh, to walk someone from the day you put buy a puppy and bring home a puppy all the way through what that puppy should look like as a finished gun dog. 
Uh, you can watch videos on your phone. You can watch them on your computer. You can follow along and, and track your progress. And uh, so we launched that. Uh, April will be two years. So we're about a year and a half in uh, almost, and, and that's been super fun. So, yeah, sort of entrenched in the, in the gun dog world and, and uh, really loving it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I met Parrish uh, probably while well, I was living in South Carolina working down there. And so that was probably three years ago. He's at a hunt test with, I think it was, was it Ford? If you remember, if you know. Yeah, his Ford, Ford and probably, um, yeah, probably just Ford, maybe Rex. No, I think he just um, had Ford at first. Yeah. And he quickly did well. I mean, we were running started together. Um, I had a bunch of young started dogs and then he came on the scene and man, he took, it went from, you know, a hobby to full blown passion obsession. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's probably one of the best dog trainers, um, that I know as far as the ability to identify a problem with a dog and fix it. So a lot of guys will train really nice dogs and they'll make some, some nice products as far as dogs, but they'll wash out a bunch of dogs too. And, uh, Parrish is a guy where I'm like, okay, we got this dog, uh, and he's really dealing with, a, uh, a, an issue and no one can seem to fix it. Who do you give him to? We'll give him to Parrish. And, uh, he can, man, he fixes everything. It's unbelievable what he's capable of doing with, with quote unquote problem dogs. That's so, cool. um, it's been fun. It's yeah. Been he's fun a good, working with him. Yeah. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, yeah. So part of what Lone Duck represents is the unspoken bond. We kind of coined that. We started about the same time. I think Lone Duck is about seven years old and, and I came up with this idea through my first dog and it was the unspoken bond. And, um, so I want to hear a little bit about your Springer Spaniel and what that kind of means to you and tell us, <laughs> tell us that story a little bit and, and, and what, yeah, what was the dog's name? Go through the whole shebang, man. Yeah. So I had a Springer Spaniel, my, my parents' best friends growing up had Springer Spaniels that were field bred, uh, when I was growing up and, and I was around them. And then, uh, my first dog was a disaster. It was part Alaskan Malamute part Timberwolf, which is a very poor decision. We ended up giving a dog to a guy that had a bunch of land, and I was like, I want a, a Springer Spaniel. So got on the internet, which was kind of new. I think I was in the ninth grade, and I found a breeder in Connecticut that had field trial lines that happened to be from the U.K. I bought a Springer Spaniel puppy. Uh, I just trained her to retrieve frisbees and sticks and anything, and she was a machine. I wish I could have that dog back. She actually lived to be uh, 15 years old. Wow. And phenomenal dog at probably, I guess she was eight or nine years old. Uh, I took her from retrieving frisbees and taught her to retrieve ducks. So when I got into duck hunting, I taught her how to retrieve ducks. And she loved it. Never skipped a beat. And that year I was a newlywed. My wife bought me another Springer Spaniel uh, as a Christmas present. And I trained that dog as best I could and then sent him to a pro trainer um, who wound up becoming my mentor, very close friend. His name's Mark Harefield. Mark has over 60 uh, Springer Spaniel field champions in the AKC, several Labrador field champions from the 80s and 90s, wow. uh, and has been importing dogs from England, Ireland, Scotland since the early 80s. Wow. And he really taught me everything I know about training to start with, about importing, breeding, raising puppies, socializing puppies, all that. I got my first Labrador from him. Um, and just really, so, so through Springers, I was introduced to Labradors, and it was British Labradors, and they were a little bit little bit smaller, a lot of drive, and very calm and quiet. And um, it, was, uh, it was good. Um, you know, I, I had a, a good start with with my first labrador she was phenomenal what was but her I name had in the back of my mind like i really love springer spaniels in fact i've got a springer right now named buster that's pretty popular on southern oak kennels instagram for his antics um <laughs> nice they're just they're just really fun dogs man they're they, they operate on a different level uh as far as the drive and ability and just 
if you could change one thing about a Springer, it would be their coat. You know, you put a Springer in really cold water and it's just like sticking a mop in the, in the ice, you know, they just freeze yeah. uh, literally. And so that's the only drawback to a Springer Spaniel. Um, one so of yeah, my, one of my that. favorite things about a Springer is when they get birdie and watching that tail go a million miles an hour back and forth, back and forth while they're trying to pinpoint where that bird is. Yeah. I love, I love watching them. You know, that, that tail action is what people call that. And that's actually something that's evaluated in field trials in the United Kingdom on cool. Springers and Labradors is tail action. Um, like when a dog gets in the area, can you look at the dog and physically see that they know they're close? Right. Sort of like a hot cold game, you know, like, are they close? And man, Springers are, they go from that bouncy sort of, I'm hunting the whole field to like, okay, it's in here. And then they just look, they just destroy the cover. That's so fun to watch. That's awesome, man. Yeah. One of our question was, um, you know, how did you get started in your mentorship and what got you into British labs? I mean, I've, when I first started, I mean, I used to back in the day, I used to read about every different breed. I mean, at one point I wanted a dog de Bordeaux, a French Mastiff, and I researched all the different breeders for that. And, you know, but my passion for the outdoors and hunting kind of led me to, of course, a, a Labrador. And, and I, at first, you know, I was enamored by Drake, the DU dog and Wild Rose and the British methods. And I read Robert Milner's book. And so anyways, I got, I, instead of going the British route, I had done more research and found um, a dog in the newspaper, which is the opposite of what I tell everyone to do. But in the newspaper, it said, Master Hunter, Grand Hunting Retriever Champion by Senior Hunter Female. And I'm like, what? I got to call these people. And turns out it was true. And I got my first dog. His name's Buck. He's like eight and a half now. And um, so that's how I got started. But I'm really well versed in the British method and why there's benefits to a British lab. But can you give us your background and what made you go British? And maybe tell people, and, and we can kind of play devil's advocate a little bit to each other of why you do British and why I uh, breed and train. Well, I train any dog from Doodle to Poodle to St. Bernard. But, you know, for my retriever training, why we have mostly American labs. Yeah. So, man, I think, um, I let me say first of all, I'm not a guy to talk down about any particular sect of the of Labradors or gun dogs for that matter. Everyone has their place. Everyone has their advantages and disadvantages, pros and cons. Um, I like um, I like British labs, first of all, because that's sort of the labs I was introduced to from the beginning. And I would imagine for most people, that's kind of the way you, you swing with everything. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. Uh, if your dad drove Chevy trucks, you probably really like Chevy trucks. Or if your parents are Republicans, you probably are Republican. Um, I was introduced to Labradors through British labs. That said, I did try to kind of go down the American lab road a little bit. Um, I think that when we evaluate the differences, we have to be really careful because those generalizations can often be, you know, there's, there's almost as many exceptions as there are rule followers. 100% and, agree. You know, so people that will try to lump them all into, well, American labs are just, you know, they, they have very bad line manners and they whine a lot. Well, that's definitely not true of all American labs. Uh, people say, well, British labs don't like cold water and they don't have drive. That's certainly not true of, of British labs, or at least all British labs. There's, there's negative yeah, examples in each. And so I was introduced to British labs first and uh, ones that were, I think, very nice, had big motors, lots of drive, um, great noses, fun to work. Um, and I, uh, you know, I stuck with those type dogs. Um, I think a lot of the differences you see, like the, the puppy you found from a, a master hunt, um, you know, Grand Hunt Retriever, Master National Hunter, that, that's important. You say, well, this is a, a nicely bred dog. Why is it nicely bred? Well, because its parents and probably its grandparents and probably its great-grandparents and so forth have achieved something. Well, beyond that question, you have to say, what did those dogs have to do to achieve that, to get whatever title it is on their pedigree? What did they have to actually do? 
And that's where I really like to, to research dogs and figure out what does it take to become a blank, whatever it is, on a pedigree. And what I found through my time in the field, my time in the UK, my time researching both at field trials and hunt tests and British field trials was I really appreciated what was required in a field trial in the UK as it pertains to an American gun dog. So what I mean by that is the things that they evaluated, I found important. Right. Even though their style of shooting is totally different from ours. I mean, it's night and day difference. Right. However, I just thought, man, this is, this is really good. Uh, as far as what do I want a dog? Well, yeah, this is, this is testing it out. You know, can they mark well? Can they honor? Are they quiet on the line? Can they handle a long period of time in the field with only retrieving maybe six or seven times? However, they're out in the field for four or five hours and they don't lose their mind, you know? Right. Um, can they hold an area and use their nose? You know, are they evaluated on how well they use their nose or on how tight they handle with the handler? Um, so anyway, there's just a few nuances and a few differences, but you know, I've had American labs come through my kennel that you could have sworn were British, and I've had British labs come through my kennel that you could have sworn were American. At the end of the day, the differences can be exaggerated a bit, I think. Right. I, had an, I did a little interview with Mike Stewart a few years ago, and you know his comment was it's a labrador you know just because yeah. my lines originate in england ireland scotland it's still a labrador they're not separate breeds and that's something i wanted to touch on was it's not separate breeds just like there's an english lab and an american lab and a british lab they're all labradors it's just yeah. how we've bred them and what we've looked for and what we've kind of pulled apart and who we've bred to who. And that's what makes them quote unquote American or British. Now I got a question for you and this is not on my notes. Can someone breed, uh, let's say British male to, uh, English or American female and still deem those puppies to be British or does that take automatically take away like the credibility of being called a British lab. No, it takes away a little bit of the credit. I mean, you're still going to get a Labrador, obviously. 100%. And there are a lot of people who have Labradors that they call British. And I think maybe they're, they have some British ancestry. Um, and what we allow our stud dogs to be used with American uh, females, uh, as long as they have their health tests and are, are like worthy candidates. I'm not worried about where they came from. Um, and so some people will do that. They'll try to kind of mix the two. Um, the problem is I think people say, all right, if you got a dog who's like a 10 on whatever scale and another dog who's a one, let's breed them and we'll get a bunch of fives. And that's just not the way it happens. You're going to get a bunch of twos and a bunch of eights. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you wouldn't call that dog a British dog anymore. You call it, you know, half and half. Um, gotcha. So they but, have yeah, to have full British big, lines. Deal. It's still a Labrador. It's still registrable. You know, all my dogs are registered with the AKC, even when I bring them over from the UK. Right. So. But that's still like so they have to have full British lineage to be deemed a true British lab, correct? Yeah, I mean, okay. you know, a lot of people in the UK probably get upset when you have a dog who's, you know, called British, but the last two or three generations have been raised in the USA, even though all the pedigree is British. You okay. know. Yep. Um, all right. So yeah, when you're looking at a stud and a, a bitch, um, how do you? How do you like to choose and pair them? What are characteristics of each that you try and bring together when you're when you're doing your breeding program? So yeah, that's a that's a phenomenal question. I'll tell you some things that aren't on my radar, um, at least the top of my radar. Things like color. A lot of people get mad because we'll breed a really nice red bitch to a, a a black stud, and people are like, "How come you're not breeding to red?" You know, I mean, we want we want red dogs, and I'm like, "Look, it, it's color is so far down the list." Um, I like to see, so first of all, I don't think you can breed things out as easily as people think. So let's just say you have a, a, a female and you're like, okay, I don't like X about her. Let's just call something like, I don't like the fact that she doesn't get in cold water. So I'm going to breed her to a stud dog that loves cold water. You're not going to get puppies that are in the middle. Like I mentioned a while ago, most likely you'll get a few that love it few that hate it and most of them are just kind of eh, don't really care i mean it, it's just not going to be 
it's not going to be this perfect 50-50 balance. It's not how breeding works. So right. I like to find two dogs that I would really want to hunt over no matter what. You know, if I'm reproducing a puppy, I want it to be one that I think is, you know, the parents are both reproducible. So if you gave me a carbon copy of that of that mom, would I be happy? And if the answer is no, then that's not something you need to be breeding. I agree. So I'm looking for with my studs, it's easy because you can kind of look and say, okay, over a period of time, and my studs are all imported. I did not fully train them. I, I either bought them as a field trial champion or brought them over as a starter dog and finished them out like red. So when, when those dogs come over and start producing puppies, you can look back and you've got this big pool of pups and you can say, okay, what is cane producing? What, what, what comes out of cane? Okay, a lot of bone structure, a lot of drive. They're a little bit soft. And you eventually kind of learn after he's bred 10, 15 litters, you get an idea of, okay, look, we're getting that, you know, he's bred three or four bitches outside of us, okay, four or five inside, that's okay. What are some common denominators we're finding? And so then you, you can say, okay, well, he's definitely going to produce puppies that have this. What bitches go well with that? You know, do you have one who's maybe she's not so soft and she's a little hard-headed? Well, cane produces softer puppies that are a little more biddable. So let's put her with cane. Um, over time, you kind of figure that out. Um, Very good. So yeah, yeah. I'm gonna just do a quick uh, dictionary here. Biddable means trainable. So yeah, yeah, trainable, workable. You know, there, there's a hard, soft scale. Hard would be the ability to, you know, you give them a lot of pressure and they don't respond at all to it. That would be on the far end of the hard scale. Soft would be you give them pressure and they respond quickly and abruptly and, and severely. So right. some dogs you may have to get onto them pretty hard, and some dogs you just raise your voice. That's all it takes. And that's a, a hard, soft, uh, we call that bottom. A lot of times when a dog can handle a lot of pressure and, and not be faced by it, it's usually called bottom. Um, we call yeah. it a little ass in them. <laughs> yeah, a little ass in them. That's right. Um, this is a good segue into one of the questions – that I get probably daily, if not, you know, multiple times a day of when I'm looking at a litter, how do I pick a puppy? How do you do it? Man, that is a tough one. Um, I picked the litter. hundred percent. So let me go back to my mentor. Hold on. Time out. That's, a, that's exactly picked, what I, I say too. A, <laughs> yeah. My very first Labrador, I, I picked the litter out and I had first pick female. And I wasn't going to make it in time for picking day. Uh, and he was like, hey, this other guy's going to come before you. Do you want me to just grab you a puppy? And I was like, no, I've got first pick. You know, I was 22, 23 years old. And I was like, no, no I, I, I deserve to be able to pick first. So I go down there early and I was like, all right, you know, help me pick one. And he was like, they're all black. Pick one up. Make sure it's a girl and go home. And I was like, man you got to give me more than that. And he was like, pick the litter and grab a puppy. You think you're going to get the biggest one? It's not going to be the biggest puppy. You think you got the smallest one? It's definitely not going to be the smallest puppy. You think you got the one with the most energy? It never winds up being the one with the most drive. You know, just pick a puppy. And and that's all coming from a litter that was very well socialized to begin with. None of the puppies were skittish or scared. They were all very well socialized. And I thought he was crazy. And now I've been a dog breeder for several years. I've sent home a lot of pups out of a lot of litters, and he was 100% accurate. Just had a post inside Southern Oak Kennel Society from Mark Helios and Zoe Heat. They have a puppy that they got. It was the darkest shade of a litter, but by far the smallest pup and kind of the, the crazy wild one. And now there's seven or eight months old now, and he is by far the biggest and super chill inside the house but the total opposite of what he was at eight weeks and that happens all the time so pick a litter pick parents that you really like uh and then just snag a pup i 100 percent agree with you on that no doubt about it and i think people who are are learning and using guys like yourself and and myself as resources to find and learn what a good litter actually means. Um, that's num a number one. And then I still would err on the side of, I don't pick the most aggressive in the litter, the one that's beating everybody up. Or I would choose, you know, if I'm a new dog owner, I wouldn't want that for their first dog. 
And then I also wouldn't want the whipping boy who's in the corner and getting beat up and um, nervous. And I think that still comes down to a lot of yeah. what, that, what that breeder does of socializing and and taking them, you know, doing as much as they can early development-wise. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I err on that middle ground to high end of the uh, assertiveness uh, to make sure that I've got a dog with some of that bottom end that we're talking about. Um, and then from eight weeks to, you know, six months is our job as the owner to develop them, socialize them, teach them right and wrong. And that's what makes your dog, but pick the right litter. Exactly. Like you said, yeah. is the most important. Yeah, yeah, I agree hundred percent as a breeder, I feel like I need to make the job of someone who's really wanting to pick out first pick of the puppy. I need to make their job very difficult. So that's what I like to do. Um, I like to, um, you know, if so let's just say we have one, and it's very obvious, I have a litter in the, in the whelping room right now. They're three days old tomorrow. I'm sorry, three weeks old tomorrow, so 20 days old today. And their eyes are open. They're walking. They're kind of starting to run, you know, and, and we go in. My kennel manager and I are in there several times a day picking them up, playing with them, rubbing on them, you know, all that. And... I would say within the next eight days, there will be a few that when we come in there, we'll run right up to the edge of the box and there'll be a few that go to the corner. Mm -hmm. And as a breeder, my job is to pick up the ones who are in the corner and show them a lot of extra attention or bring my kids down here. Hey, look, go find the puppy that runs away from you. Pick that one up, play with it for an hour. Um, and by the time they go home, that's, that's the goal is, Hey, they're all, pretty even keeled we don't have any that are standoffish but you're right i mean i would say if you've got a litter of puppies and they're exhibiting a lot of differences uh pick pick the middle of the road to the higher end of energetic and outgoing um if they're if you're rating them one to ten pick the six to eight if you can yeah yeah no 100 percent agree um let's kind of segue into another section that's kind of fun um Tell us about any of your hunts that you're going to go on this fall. Where are you going? What are you excited about? What are your plans for the season? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, just got back from Texas with the Lifetime Decoy crew and the Clack Rat crew. Um, man, it was a blast. We crushed Teal, went to South Central Texas on the west side of Houston, I uh, killed my limit of mosquitoes every 10 minutes and <laughs> just crushed them till two. Took some awesome video footage we hope to release soon. Uh, I'm going to uh, North Dakota with a great group of guys. Um, really excited. It's, it's my first time going on a hunting trip where everyone that's going, I would say, is in my closest group of friends. Cool. And so um, we'll be doing some content creation, but mostly just, having fun as friends and we're doing that uh first week of november which i guess would be late season for north dakota i like going when it's really cold up there um and uh after that uh doing some cool stuff doing some stuff in the um in the timber in arkansas in december um with um uh beretta and uh, what else do i have i know i'm going to oklahoma uh, in November and probably in January as well. And then, uh, Kansas in February for their late goose season. Oh, buddy. Yeah, it's really fun. And then in January, I have a hunt with some of our clients in Arkansas for speckle geese with, um, Trevor at top of the flyway outfitter who he, I don't know if y'all ever heard of Trevor, Trevor Montefell, but he crushes in Alberta. Like right now they're absolutely, I mean, they're killing limits of ducks and geese almost every day. And then he comes all the way down to Arkansas and dives on specs, and he crushes there too. So super good guy. Every year I take a group of clients to hunt a weekend with him. Nice. And uh, that should fill it up. In between there, I'm going to the um, International Gundog League Retriever Championships in England uh, the first week of December. So it's going to be a lot of travel this year, uh, a lot of miles on the truck and in the sky. So good for looking you. forward to it. Are you looking for potential gun dogs over in England to bring back and import, or are you just going for fun, or are you going to run a dog? 
Um, I can't run a dog. I would love to do that. You'd have to live there and be a member of several clubs to do that. Man, that's I will r- definitely be looking for um, potential dogs. I would say more than looking for potential dogs, I'm looking for uh, what I see in lines of dogs. So right now I have a stud dog named Kane, the field trial champion, and he has three puppies that have qualified for the championship so far, and we're only three weeks into their trial season. Um, so he's got pups in the UK that are doing really well, and I want to go see those dogs. Um, and I want to see other dogs that are producing pups that might be running as well, so I can look for you know future stud dogs, future lines. Sometimes you, you hear about a, a dog that's available and you say, oh, man, I saw that dog's mom in a trial and it wasn't great, you know, and I kind of want to stay away from that. Most of the time it's good stuff. Um, so, yeah, got, got friends and business partners over there that will have afternoon tea and uh, eat dinner together and uh, watch their, their way of shooting and trialing. It's just so fun to watch. So it'll be, it'll be a good time. Good deal. Um, while we're on the subject of their field trial, can you describe how – what it looks like, what it looks like when you get there and you show up in the morning and it's time to start, what does it go from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m.? How does that trial run? Yeah, it's fun. Uh, they do one day and two day stakes. We'll, we'll just talk about the open. So this, they're, they're open and novice goes by the dog, not the handler. So an open will be professionals and amateur handlers, but the dogs will have all one and novice stake. So um, the biggest thing over there is like a two-day open stake. It's 24 dogs. You show up in the morning. Everyone registers. Everyone gets an armband. There's a drawing that took place to decide which 24 dogs can enter. That drawing will usually consist in England of anywhere from 50 to 150 dogs. Uh, Scotland and Ireland a little bit less. less. Um, and uh, so you get in a line. And if you ima- imagine um, – for those of you all around the country, uh, whatever row crop is grown near you, so maybe it's corn, maybe it's beans, maybe it's uh, whatever, whatever it is, um, cotton, whatever. Imagine that field being all green, either hay or sugar beet, uh, and you form a line, and the line is in the order of a gun, a dog handler, a dog handler, a judge, a gun, a judge, a dog handler, a dog handler, and a gun in a big line and another judge right behind each dog handler. And then a couple guys like me, which are basically, um, guys carrying, uh, birds for the judges. Um, so we would start walking. Judges would say line forward. Everyone walks in a row as a bird flushes its shot. And they would say, okay, Bob, you're number one, send your dog, and you send your dog. If the other dogs take a step, make a noise, move, you're out. Um, If your dog finds it, great, right back. Now it's the next dog, dog number two's turn. If your dog doesn't find it, then dog number two gets a chance to find it. If dog number two doesn't, then three, then four. And after four dogs don't find it, the judges go looking for it. Um, If the judges find it, all four of them are out. It's called an eye wipe. If dog number one doesn't find it and dog number two does find it, dog number one is out. Um, kind of like knockout. You'll just walk. Yeah, it's like knockout. You'll walk uh, sometimes miles and miles and miles, depending on where you are. Um, every once in a while, they do driven trials, especially in the south of England, where you just stand in line like that, and the, do- the birds are driven out of like the woods, and people are shooting them up high, and the dogs are retrieving them, almost always in some sort of thick cover or in the woods. Um so yeah, that's a short version of it. You do that through the day, and, and you have different rounds. Your dog gets like two retrieves in the first round, one retrieve in the second, two retrieves in the third, and then they make a cut. And whoever makes the cut goes to the fourth, and then maybe the fifth round. Do they have a land-water series, or ju- is it all land where they're basically like the English honor style like you're describing on land? Yeah, there's not a, there's not a lot of water, although in order to be a field trial champion, you have to do some water retrieve work. So they have to have a water certificate, which shows them retrieving across water. Um, so, and, and there will definitely, I've been to several trials where we were walking through a valley and in the middle of the valley with a really deep, large creek. And so the dogs on the left were retrieving all the birds from the ones on the right. And so they were having to cross the valley, swim through the creek, and then go up the other side. Gotcha. Um, what about blind yeah, so retrieves? 
Do what now? Oh, I'm sorry. What about blind retrieves? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. So, I mean, you may be standing in line and a bird flushes and you shoot it. And because you shot, three more flush and all those get shot. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the judge, the judge is going to say, okay, uh, Kevin, your bird is, you know, you see this tree that's 200 yards over there. The bird is about 25 yards to the right down the hills of the tree. And you got to go get it. Nice. And so they're judged or, on yeah, that. Yeah. Every retrieve is different. Like, other than the eye wipe situation, no dog gets the same two retrieves, which is much more like a spaniel trial over here. Gotcha. Now, so, I mean, yeah. j- now I'm going to play devil's advocate and, and explain a little yeah. bit about the American hunt test field trial and the American hunt for the people who don't know, right? Um, the American hunt test yeah. and field trial is several series. There's a land series, a water series, a land water series, depending on the age of dog and all that jazz. So Correct. we, and we do it exactly the same as best we can for every single dog so that the dog either, like all the dogs have the same chance at the same setup and therefore there's no variation. Like if you're running a field yep. trial in America, there's first, second, third, fourth place. And therefore if we're running it, my dog is marking better than Kevin's dog and ran a better blind than Kevin's dog. My dog's in first, his dog's in second. Where what I'm understanding in the British way is my dog got a completely different look, like pretty much a gimme maybe. Like, boom, bird goes up, knock down 50 yards, boom, pick it up, bring it back, bingo, bango. Kevin's bird gets shot, and it sails 80 yards over a hedgerow down a hill, and it's kind of a tough mark. He's still got to go and perform that. His you know, his dog does it. My dog does it. How is that judged because of the variation? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. Uh, great question. So, um, Kevin actually has a, a, a better chance at that point. If, if you get a, a 40 to 60 yard bird dropped right in front, you better not screw it up. Um, you better be straight out, straight back. All the retrieves are judged, uh, on like a ABC scale. Uh, really, an A B scale. Uh, if you get if you get a B, you're kind of out. Uh, if you get an A, you're in, and you can get an A minus. You can also get um, a a what, what you would call A plus or a credit. So, bird falls 40 yards. Bob's dog goes, picks it up, brings it right back. Next dog sails 250 yards over the edge of of the valley into the water, and Kevin's dog goes and it takes, you know, 12 casts to get the dog there, but it was like an insanely difficult retrieve and you're not so sure any other dog. I mean, that's a really tough retrieve for any dog and he gets it. He's going to get what you call credit at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to show later on when you're, you know, making the cut, you know, a dog that has a straight across the board, that dog will stay in a dog that's got, uh, you know, let's, let's just say we get to the end of the trial and your dog got a bunch of 40, 50 yard marks. They, they actually, a lot of judges will try to fix that. Like, hey, Bob's dogs have all gotten really easy marks. So if we shoot one right in front, let's not send Bob's dog. Let's gotcha. wait until we have a further bird. Okay. Um, sometimes you can manufacture that sort of stuff. Um, but again, what they're trying to evaluate is what dog performed the best on a, on a normal day's shoot. Gotcha. And... American hunt test is similar. What dog performed closest to the standard we have on a normal day shoot. And then American field trials are what dog performed best on an extraordinary shoot where the birds fell way further than we (laughs) would ever expect them to fall. Um, So you just have, you know, those differences um, in the evaluation. Cool. Do you uh, personally, I know a bunch of the SOK dogs run hunt tests with their owners, but do you personally take dogs and, and run them in tests? No, I thought about running my dog Red. I've got a lot of people that want me to do it. Uh, Wally wants to run him, my trainer at Michigan. Uh, Wally's really nice. Uh, when it comes to hunt tests, he has a really fun time with it. I did hunt tests. I don't even know when that was, 2011 and 12 maybe, but I was also at that point in time a discipleship pastor at church, so I could only run 
on Saturday. I couldn't run on Sunday. Gotcha. And so I kind of got away from it. And then my experiences with hunt test after that were very negative. Um, not really for me, just from at that point, I think around here, you were kind of treated a little differently. If you had a British dog and a British whistle and you sent dogs continental style with your right hand, you know, you were just kind of laughed at. So I got away from it, but I've since made friends with people in the hunt test community and they've been very welcoming and very friendly. Um, Wally it's crushing hunt tests in the Northeast. He came down here a few weeks ago and we, we grilled food for anyone who wanted food at a huge hunt test down here, just 30 minutes from the house. I think we, Southern Oak Kennel Dogs made up like 5% of the entries in the test, I think. Nice. So we have a lot of people running. Um, I've thought about it, but to be honest with you, it takes a lot of time to run this company. And, uh, when I can get time to just train my own dogs, I feel like it's been a success. Yeah. So, I'd love to get to a point where I have the freedom to go and do that stuff. Right now, my guys are, are doing that for me. Parrish runs a bunch of hunt tests with his crew, and uh, Wally runs a bunch of hunt tests. And we also have a Southern Oak Kennel outpost in Wisconsin with Alex Britton at Bracken Creek. And uh, he's got uh, one of our females who's an HRCH dog, and he's got a 500-point uh, male dog who's retired now from hunt tests, and, and he does very well with those as well. Cool. Yeah, you know, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. There, I feel like a few years ago, people were more uh, jerks. It would probably be the word I would say about everything. And I feel like in the last few years, people have eased up and has been more welcoming to just, hey, come out and have fun no matter what kind of dog, what style you do. We're here for the dogs, not yeah you know what i mean and i kind of know what you're talking about that's too bad yeah you know it's um it's it's come a long way i feel like I, yeah i agree i i think everybody you know maybe it's it was obama i don't know we're more accepting now <laughs> yeah yeah there it is Even i don't know hope and change that's uh, right i think honestly um we've got more people running british labs in them i think early on there may have been some kennels that kind of discouraged uh clients from running in those things with their british labs but to be honest in the hunt test world i think the british bred labs can do it just as well as the american bred dogs and i think people have showed that I mean, we've got wally has a dog named hank and a dog named ashley Ashley has failed two finish tests, both of them at the same location, both of them on a Sunday, and both of them two days before she started her heat cycle, which is hilarious. Yeah, uh, She's a very predictable dog. But other than that, I think she's 13 for 15 in finish tests, and then Hank is 15 for 15 or 14 for 14 in finish tests and 2 for 2 in master's tests. And yeah. neither one of those dogs have ever worn an electronic collar. Yeah, And I think the old, they're both right at almost 3. So Beautiful. most of that was done by their second birthday. Beautiful. And, you know, they're, everyone's been super welcoming, super supportive, super, uh, you know, social. Everyone wants to hang out. Everybody likes to meet the dogs. And, and Wally's doing a great do job with them in the training and then also just being present at the test and encouraging, you know, folks to be there with them and clients to be there. And, yeah, it's definitely fun. Cool. Uh, the whole e-collar thing is an awesome segue uh, I posted on your Facebook group there, um, and Jason McCoy asked a question um, to both of us, and it was, discuss the differences between our styles and e-collar versus no e-collar and how we make corrections out in the field at distances. So I'll let you take your route, like why you choose no and I I know asking a couple questions is tough at once, but like why no e-collar and then how, what methodologies do you use when you need to make a correction and the dogs out, you know, at a distance? Yep. Awesome. So contrary to what most people think, we're not an anti-electronic collar company. I actually got a new e-collar from a friend of mine in the, um, the canine protection IPO dog world the other day, just to kind of play with it. And uh, I'm not using it for any gun dog work, but it's a really sweet e-collar. It's different from anything in the gun dog world. It's got four prongs and just really a hundred different levels and fun really? to play with. I've been actually messing with it on my arm, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> the levels and see what they feel like. Um, I'm not anti e-collar. 
course on Gundar Academy does not use e-collars because I really feel like it can be a, a dangerous tool in the hands of the wrong people. And it's one of those things that if you're going to teach someone to use it, I'd rather you do it in person. And I'd rather you be sure that that person knows how to read dogs. Because I think if you just give everyone a tool like that, it can definitely do much more damage than it can good, um, especially with the lack of education. So um, we're not anti-e-collar. We don't use them. Uh, for the most part, if we have a client who wants to use it, then we'll send them to one of our trainers who is very good at using them with dogs who accept less pressure, like Alex. Uh, Alex is really good at it. Parrish is good at it. He doesn't do it a whole lot, but he's very good at it. Wally, I don't think, has a clue how to use an e-collar, but he's very good at training a dog without one. Uh, and I don't use them at all, and neither does Brad anymore. So... On a correction in a long distance, it's definitely the, the problem. So everybody wants to know, how do you get a dog to stop on a whistle if they don't have a knee collar on? They blow you off on the whistle. And the problem is they just don't. They haven't fully generalized the behavior. So the behavior, might they might have learned what it means to stop on a whistle. They may be a little bit fluent, but it's not a generalized behavior, meaning it hasn't become ingrained as a habit. They don't perform it in multiple locations with different types of stimulus. Um, and so you go back and you... You try your best when you're training without a knee collar to set a dog up for success and not failure. And when they do fail, you walk out, you stop them. You can issue a correction in the field if you need to. Um, but what I do is simplify. And so if I have a dog who just blows the whistle off and will not stop at all, I realize we've gone too far too fast. We need to back up. We need to work on whistle stop drills that are different, um, pull them out of that environment and set them up for success because personally, I want a dog who really wants to stop on a, on a whistle, not a dog who understands if I don't stop, I'm going to get nuked. Um, not saying all the guys do that, but you can definitely see those dogs that turn around and look at you like, oh, boy, I better stop or this is going to hurt. Um, and so I want a dog that stops with his head up high. I'm excited. This is teamwork. I understand what we're doing. And I feel like I can get that best without an e-collar, even if it takes a little bit longer than, than a guy who has an e-collar. Um, I saw a guy on a forum the other night. It was like, well, you can ride a horse to work or you could drive a, a climate-controlled automobile. And I was like, yeah, I get that analogy. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. For me, um, it's, hey, you could ride a golf cart or you can walk the course. And I really enjoy walking the course and taking it all in, taking my time, enjoying the whole walk and what all it has to offer. And being sure by the end, I really appreciate that journey. I'm not looking for a shortcut. Um, again, not anti-e-collar. I think there's some great trainers who use them. Where you know we've got a lot of clients who don't understand them. They don't want them on their dogs. They you know we're dealing with dogs from the UK where electronic collars are not used at all, uh, and these dogs have been you know successfully trialed uh, without them for 100 plus years. So. When you take a dog like that and try to put them into a cookie cutter e-collar program, they're going to fail and um, they're not going to understand that type of pressure. So we don't use them here, but again, not anti and uh, yeah. All right. That's my, my sort of All right. content on it. Cool. Before I get into my explanation of what we do, um, would you mind, because part of his question was like, how do we do it? So would you mind doing, like you explained that you had a couple sit-to-whistle drills to teach first? Um, do you mind just taking one example of, you know, how you would get a dog? Like what's a good drill that you like to do on a dog that is wishy-washy? You've got them at heel. They're sitting good at heel. They'll do it on the return, but going out, they're not doing great. What is your, how, what would you tell me what to do? Yeah, pull push uh, would be a good one for that. So a lot of times the the drive to go get it overpowers the, the desire to please you and sit, right? Yep. So you take that away from it while it's also including a retrieve. So you do pull push. So throw out a dummy, walk the dog 50 yards away, tell the dog to sit. You walk another 25, 30 yards, call the dog to you, and when the dog is halfway to you, blow the whistle and have them sit. Um, if they sit and immediately try to run back and get the dummy, then hit the whistle really hard, try to get them to sit again. If they don't do it, then you're, you're not far enough along and whistle sits. If they sit and look at you, then give them a back cast immediately, which is the reward for sitting. Hey, now you get to go get it. And so what you're doing is you're helping the dog understand when I sit, he's going to let me go get it. And so pull push would be a great drill for that. That's a good one. Yeah. 
I do that yeah. one. I do that Super one too. Fun. Yep. Yeah. Um, another one I do is I'll let the dog just be free playing and I'll blow the whistle. They turn and look, I throw them a fun bumper and it's just a, Hey, yeah. reward for doing it. Nice job, big guy. Yeah. You, you did it. That's and, how we start. Yeah. And that's within cornerstone. So we do whistle sit at heel, whistle sit at play, whistle sit at play with a thrown retrieve, whistle sit on recall with a thrown retrieve, pull push, and then whistle sit on pile drill. That's sort of the progression we do. Gotcha. It's not that much different than how I do it um, at all. It's just I use I do no. I do use knee collar and some dogs are different you know some dogs pick it up real quick and you don't even really need the e-collar on whistle set some dogs you do um so how i do it just for the listeners not necessarily for you but for the listeners i teach first the command right whether it's here or sit or heel or whatever it is i teach first and then i overlay with the e-collar so i teach first using a leash popping them on the leash and getting them to do what I want them to do and teaching them what's expected of them. And now they've got a strong understanding of what it is, whether it's heel, sit, whistle, sit. And then I overlay it with the e-collar and I use my, my general rule of thumb is the least amount of pressure to get the desired response. So if, if the least amount of pressure is a verbal sit, like a gruff verbal sit, that was the least amount of pressure. If it's a pop on the lead, it's a pop on the lead. If it's a nick on the e-collar, it's a nick on the e-collar once they understand the e-collar and what that means and how to turn the pressure off and be successful. Um, And same idea with the same drill you you just mentioned. That's how I do it. Um, It's way easier to get a dog to sit on the whistle after you've taught it at heel with the lead to get a dog to stop when they're coming towards you than when they're going yeah. going away. So yeah, 100%. when you've 100%. got yeah, when you've got that real solid and they're, you know, either coming back from a fun bumper or a retrieve or pile work or whatever it is, when they're stopping on a dime with a bumper in their mouth or just stopping on a dime, now I feel strongly that they understand what that whistle means and I can move to stopping them while they're driving to a, a pile. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is distance erodes control. Bam. So it's much much easier to start stopping them at 10, 15 yards than it is at 150. Yep. Um, and so, you know, once you get them stopping at shorter distances, then you increase the distance. And it's really simple. And what you're saying is 100% accurate. I mean, you, you want to teach the command before you, you know, punish for not doing it. So right. a lot of people call that reinforcing. I understand what they mean by that, but... Honestly, you use positive reinforcement to teach it, and then you can use positive punishment um, to help a dog understand when they do it wrongly. So positive reinforcement, if you do it right, you get the bird or you get the dummy or you get the treat, whatever it is. Um, Positive punishment, if you do what I didn't want you to do, then you get it punished. So that's where an e-collar comes in on whistle stops. So, hey, I've rewarded you for stopping on the whistle by throwing you a dummy. Now you understand what it means. If you don't do it, then I'm going to give you a nick. That would be positive punishment. You're adding in something the dog does not like in order to get them to not do something um, that you don't want them to do, which is keep running. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you can do both. I mean, there's definitely ways to do it. I have probably walked a lot more out into the field than guys who use e-collars, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with admitting it, too. I think people that will tell you that it's easier or faster to train without one are just not being honest with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's to each his own. And I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. I I truly don't because I've, I've seen people do it the British method or I've got a, a older guy who's from Louisiana. He calls it the Amish method without the e-collar. And you know, it's just, you know, yeah, yeah, he's just busting chops and, but I've seen a lot of great dogs, master hunters included, and everything up and down, you know, that are very successful at it. But it takes the dog still has to understand right and wrong and what's to be expected of them and be taught first before they get a correction. Um, you know, yeah. that's a big one. Um, he, and I, I think that, and this is the last thing I'll say on it. We can, we can move on. I don't want to uh, beat a dead horse, no pun intended, but, you know, and, 
there are a lot of people out there that misuse e-collars. And there are also a lot of people out there that misuse slip leads or choke collars or pinch collars. Um, and Or physical you know, pressure. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is, or their fists or their feet, whatever it is, right? So, you know, you don't want to lump in everyone into into that category, you know? I've been to training days where dogs get out of the trailer, they diary all over the place with their tail tucked, they're nervous as can be, and they, you know, they they can't stand the handler, their tail is tucked the whole training session, they basically just get through it. Um, that's not dog training, you know? But at the same time, I wouldn't consider that guy a really good dog trainer. Um, there are people who use e-collars and people who don't, who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. And look, I've met people who don't use them who are just as abusive with the shepherd staff or uh, their fist or whatever it is, you know. So you don't want to lump everyone in, again, just like British and, and American Labradors. You know, you don't want to generalize everyone. It's, uh, you know, exactly. It would be fair, and there are plenty of people doing it right on both sides of the fence with that one. 100% agree. All right, another question from your uh, community. His name is Cody Dieterer. He said he asked, uh, "When do we use a vest during hunting season? When do you use a neoprene vest? At what temperature or what um, habitat you're hunting in do you deem it's right to use a vest?" Yeah, great question. Um, you know, you definitely want to watch the signs for hypothermia. I don't really like to use the vest unless ice is involved or natural hazards. So if there are um, cypress knees or sticks or maybe there's a fence buried somewhere that we're not sure about, you know, you want to be very, very cautious in those um, in those particular areas. Ice is bad because it'll scratch up the belly of a dog pretty badly when they're breaking it. And uh, if they jumped on it, it could cut them up or pierce them or whatever. So a vest is good then. Um, I don't know that a vest will keep a dog a whole lot warmer when it comes to just typical water it you know let's just say it's 35 out the water's really cold the biggest thing is being being able to get your dog out of that water so they can shake off and be out of the wind um so yeah it can help with the core tip if there's a strong wind blowing but most of the time it's just being in the blind being on a dog stand in the blind having a buddy heater to blow some heat and uh, not letting that wind evaporate that water off their skin so quickly yeah um, that's for labradors is what i'm mostly talking about so yeah that's when i use them i say when it's extremely cold there's ice in the water or there's natural hazards in the water that's the only time we really use them 100 percent agree i think most of what they do is protect protect the dogs from puncture wounds um and i think you know the number one thing if you are wearing a vest is to have it fit properly on the dog you know that's 100 percent correct yeah a big bulky yeah. dog vest is only hurting your dog um, yep. it's, it needs to be nice and snug. So any water that's up in there attached to the dog is basically being warmed by the dog's core body temperature. But for the most part, yep. I think they're better for puncture wound protection. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And, and, you know, everybody, everybody has a dog vest they love and that they swear by it usually has much more to do with the shape of your dog. Um, for our dogs, we really love the, the rig of my bloodline vest, that new vest they have. Golly, that thing is a good fit for us uh it's worked very well for our dogs as far as wearing them like in a dry field situation the only time we've ever put a vest on a dog is if they were cut corn stalks that were pretty hard that might cut a dog up that's the only time we ever put a dog on a vest that went in the water um gotcha. and then what you said you know the water traps between the dog and the vest it's a good thing if it's tight because it'll warm it up keep the dog like an insulation piece exactly um but Labradors are pretty hardy animals, and, and you just want to be, you know, it's your job to protect them. Uh, we actually have a whole module inside Cornerstone called Vet Talk or Doc Talk, where we discuss hypothermia, overheating, you know, feeding, when to feed on a hunting trip, you know, and then health tests and uh, vaccinations, all that stuff. Multiple videos with a, a world renowned Labrador veterinarian here in our community. And, uh, hypothermia is probably one I like talking about the most because it sneaks up on people. You know, people don't notice it. They don't think about it. And, uh, it happens all, every year. There's someone on Facebook talking about a dog that died because it got too cold. Yeah. And, uh, you know what I think you. it's preventable for sure. You know what I think people don't think about as much is hyperthermia. So overheating, like we don't get to dove hunt up here in New York. It's illegal, but, when I was in South Carolina and everybody basically other than New York 
gets to hunt doves and it's hot. Yeah. You know, September 1st, dogs yeah. are out in the sun doing multiple retrieves and, and just hot. And that, to me, is almost more dangerous than hypertherm or hypothermia. Yeah, it's so easy, too. People don't think about it. I, I can go on a, a pretty long rant. I'll avoid it about dove hunting. I do dove hunt my dogs. I always go to places where there's a pond, and I can keep the dog in the shade and keep them wet so they're evaporating. But yep. it's the worst. People people usually get their dog trained over the summer, and they're like, hey, I'm going to let him dove hunt for his first time. I'm like, oh, really? So the smallest possible bird shot probably probably by someone who's, 80 to 100 yards away from you mm-hmm. and they've never been trying to do that falling on a dirt field is the same color as the dirt it has down feathers that are going to fall all out your dog's tongue while it's breathing hard can't use its nose because it's breathing so heavily because it's hot it's the worst case you know dude i can't um, agree yeah. more i literally can't agree more that a dog's first hunt probably shouldn't be a dove hunt yeah teal hunt that's fine go hunt teal and flooded rice or flooded smart weed that's awesome super cool they come in fast, but maybe the dog will mark them. But you're in the water, you're having fun. It's a duck, you know. That's cool. Dove hunting is just so. I mean, I, I had a guy the other day, a pro trainer. He was like, "Man, a, a dove hunt will make a really nice dog look awful." And I was like, "You're exactly right." Yep. I mean, it is. It'll it'll show you your weaknesses in training, and it'll ruin a young dog. And uh, so, you know, I get every year someone texts me, "Hey, I took my dog in a dove hunt, and it ate the first bird." <laughs> Dude. And I'm like, "Yeah, well." It's the size of the palm of your hand, and it's got down feathers, and that dog picked it up, and I'm sure it tastes a little blood, and those feathers started falling off on its tongue, and he rolled his tongue back, and down he went. Dude, I got a funny yeah. story, I, and Rodney's going to kill me. Um, so I trained this dog down in South Carolina. He was a nice dog. He was high drive, full tilt. Rodney took him on his first dove hunt. He ate like 13 doves. And I mean, he was, he was force fetched. He was through, he was a really nice dog, but it was like Rodney said it was down his gullet. He didn't even chew it and just gone. He said he was pooping feathers for like three days. That makes for a really nice kind of cleanup. Oh God. Oh man. It happens all the time. It's not uncommon. I know it. Um, But yeah, overheating dogs. And then it's really important to, to listen to people who, there's a lot of resources out there right now. I just wrote an article the other day on, on how to deal with um, with overheating dogs. And, man, you know, getting them in, in the A.C., either in the floorboard of your truck or with the A.C. rolling, getting them wet, getting their belly and their feet wet. And then also, like, in every first aid kit, you really need a quick thermometer. Um, and once that temp starts to drop, shut the process down. Right. Keep the air moving maybe, but just – it'll drop on its own after that point. You know, a lot of dogs experience, you know, hypothermia after hyperthermia because you get their temp dropping so quickly it just keeps plummeting, and that's when you wind up with a lot of brain damage and that sort of stuff. So yeah, you can shock their system. Strokes, a real thing happens to a lot of people. People tell me all the time, I was working my dog, and he got a little hot, and he came back, and he was wobbling everywhere, and I'm like, well, that's called a heat stroke. You yeah. know, I mean, you, you're lucky if he's normal after that. Right. And, it, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a scary thing. Yeah. Especially for us. I don't know what you're talking about. I live in Mississippi, bro. <laughs> yeah. We was, had a ridiculously hot summer. There was like a four-week span where every day the heat index was over 100. Oh, God. We only had a few days that were yeah. real, real steamy like that. We've got a lot of humidity up here, believe it or not, but it's in, it hovers in the 80s and humid, you know, so it's not too bad, but, man, I don't want to be in the hundreds. But, yeah, yeah, Kevin just yeah. goes, you know, we'll be hunting when it's negative 10, though. So, I guess to each his That's own. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah, we'll give and take there for sure. That's right. Well, Barton, listen, man, we are an hour into this podcast. I can't thank you enough. I think everyone who listened learned something about British labs, British hunt tests and field trials, um, you know, your methods versus our methods and – you know, I just, I really enjoyed talking with you. I really enjoyed your expertise. Um, do me a favor. How can people follow you? What do you, like a parting piece of, you know, whatever you want it to be. And uh, we'll, we'll end it on that. So it's, the floor is yours. And go ahead, brother. Awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed this time. Super fun question. Thank you guys for 
for setting them all up and uh, hopefully was uh, enjoyable for other duck hunting and gun dog uh, enthusiasts out there. As far as us, uh, Southern Oak Kennels on Facebook and Instagram is how you can follow us. Definitely encourage you to check out Cornerstone Gun Dog Academy as well. That's on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we post some, you know, a lot of times I'm out in the middle of the training session getting on all my friends' nerves because I put the whole thing on Instagram, just trying to show people, hey, here's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're trying to trying to show people uh, uh, different ways and different methods and, and things that might be helpful for them. Um, and, yeah, if you're interested in British Labradors, we're happy to chat. We've got an online Facebook group called the Southern Oak Kennel Society. It's a private group. Request to join. We'll put you in there, and uh, we chat all things gun dog. And, look, there's a lot of American lab people in there, a lot of field trialers and hunt test guys in there. And, uh, look, if you love gun dogs, then, then we're your friend. So happy to have you in there and talk dogs. We try to keep it uh, drama-free, which is rare on Facebook nowadays. And uh, thankful for your interaction there, Bob, as well, and, and uh, for you guys having me on and letting me be a part of uh, Long Duck Podcast. Appreciate it very much. Dude, thank you very much. I, I can't thank you enough. This is the start of a good friendship, and uh, I wish you, your dogs, and all your friends a awesome 2018-2019 hunting season, man. Thank you so much for being a part of uh, this podcast. Thank you, guys. Bob Kevin, enjoyed it very much, and I uh, hope you guys have a, a great evening and a great season as well. All right, man. Thank you. Have a great night. Yes, sir. See ya. Bye. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one -on -one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.